Hello, Stephen Backhouse here. If you are a listener to the Tent Podcast, it will be no surprise to you to learn that I love the Gospel of Mark. I often teach from it, and I refer to it all the time. This summer, from the 11th to the 15th of July, I have been invited by the Vancouver School of Theology to run one of their summer school courses. The course is called A Political Theology Bible Study of Mark's Gospel. Previous biblical studies or political theology knowledge is not expected or required. The course will be held online, and you can find out all the information you need by visiting vst.edu and searching for summer school, or by simply following the link provided in the show notes to this episode. I look forward to seeing you later this summer. Welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Norman Wersba is the Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Christian Theology at Duke Divinity School and Senior Fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. He is the author and editor of 16 books including This Sacred Life, humanity's place in a wounded world, which is the main reason I wanted to talk to Norman. Another reason I wanted to talk to him is that he is the editor and collaborator with Wendell Berry, the agrarian Kentucky farmer and essayist who has been so influential in my life and in the life of a lot of people connected to the Tent Talks universe. Norman is also an agrarian philosopher and theologian. He writes about food and land and place and culture. As you will hear, he is a real island of sanity in a world that has lost its tiny mind. Norman writes wonderfully and beautifully, and I highly recommend his books to you, especially This Sacred Life, which is the book that forms the focus of our conversation today. I mean, do you consider yourself a political theologian? Uh, I don't know. It depends what you mean by the word political. I mean, it, it can take a lot of different registers, but, you know, for sure, I'm interested in political economy. And I think if I had a worry about theology as a discipline, as it's being practiced, is that it's often not grounded very well. And it, it risks sort of taking flight into piety or sentimentality and or just abstract formulation. And, and I think what's, what's a problem with that is that uh, we've got a world that's in serious trouble and world in all senses of the term, social worlds, economic worlds, ecosystems. I mean, there's so much trouble right now and theology needs to be able to figure out how to speak into that and not be so disincarnate as I think a lot of it is. And so Political economy as the context in which I do my reflection is really important, but I'm not a political theologian in the sense that, say, Luke Bretherton is a political theologian, right? I mean, he's he's studied political theory and knows all that stuff really well, and that's not a, a, a kind of expertise that I would claim, but I'm very interested in an economy in the biggest sense of the term, which means you have to talk about political formations, power relations, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of doing systems 
a lot of systems work I noticed in the sacred life. You're basically talking about how do systems work. I, we're we're going to talk about the sacred life for sure. Your book that I've, I'm in the middle of, I'm absorbing it and really liking it. But oh, good. Uh, yeah, really, really loving it. But, but I'm just so aware how much it's about connections, hidden connections between people. And do you know Ian, Mc, uh, not Ian McFarlane, who's the guy that wrote The Hidden Way, uh, The Old Ways? And the uh, Rob McFarland. Rob McFarland, yeah. Oh yeah, Rob's a friend. He's fabulous. Yeah. So I was really interested by your the the kind of meshwork world that you're talking about. I mean, that yeah, reminds so, me very you know, much Rob, of Rob McFarland's work. Yeah, Rob is has actually participated in this multi-year program I did here at Duke on the Anthropocene and how to rethink disciplines in light of it. So you know, we we spent some time together over three years with. A team of a bunch of people, including you know Willie Jennings and Janet Soskis and Tim Ingold and Robin Kimmerer was part of that for a while. I mean, we had some really stellar people involved in this program, and the the point was to figure out how does this thing called the Anthropocene, which we're not that interested in defending really, but how does the Anthropocene serve as an occasion to ask fundamental questions in a new way? Because the Anthropocene, if it signals anything, it is it's a signaling of how the traditional formulations of economy, nature, politics, law, certainly major anthropological questions, um, they're all put into question in a serious way. And so this was really a, a wonderful opportunity where we got some creative, smart people coming back to these fundamental questions and seeing how do, how do we think about these things now that the world has changed significantly and the way we think about ourselves and our place in the world is, is now changed pretty dramatically. So uh, yeah, what Rob is doing is fabulous. What um, Tim Ingold is doing is fabulous. I mean, there's just so much, so much room for, for creative engagement and development. And, you know, I, I'm hoping that theologians will wake up to it a bit more a lot of people still within not just theology, but a lot of disciplines, they're assuming that we're living in a world that's pretty stable. It's just going to keep on going the way it always has. And we can just assume that the models by which we've been operating are coherent and compelling, and they're not. This, this project, this sacred life is trying to be an intervention into how we need to clarify some, I think, big conceptual mistakes but then also uh, see what does theology have to say when we want to, to take into account the things that are being revealed to us now and, and speak theologically and persuasively into that, that changed circumstance. So can we, can we, we've started to talk about it. So can we back up a bit? So the sacred life is the book that's, that I'm holding in my hands right now. What was the genesis of it? Where did it, was there a catalyst moment or what was the, was there a problem that you were tasked to, yeah. So a number of years ago, I, I put together a proposal for a fellowship. Uh, and my claim there was that we don't, first of all, have a very clear understanding of what the doctrine of creation is attempting to do. And as a result, we don't have a very clear articulation of what it means to say that human beings are creatures. And so that was the germ of the idea that we, we don't have a developed doctrine of creation. And as a result, we don't really know how to talk about human beings. We've basically accepted philosophical framings, whether they be Aristotelian or Cartesian, whatever. And I wanted to say, no, the biblical notion of human beings as creatures, that ought to be significant. It ought to change 
in fundamental ways what we think a human being is. But to do that, you first of all have to have a very uh, fairly clear articulation of what it means to say that the world is created and not just natural. And so I started working on those themes and, and, and was really enjoying it. And I thought, well, there's another dimension to this, which is the third part, which is creativity. So you have to re-describe the world as creation, re-describe human beings as creatures, and re-describe the human vocation as creativity. Because I thought those logics are going to be fairly closely intertwined. And I hadn't seen theologians doing that. Um, many of them don't even bother with creation. They think it's basically backdrop. And the only thing that really matters is that you start by saying God creates everything. And then the rest is sort of, I don't know, somehow it's somehow taken care of. And, and I want to say, no, actually, not that's not the case. And, and the, the key is to not think that the teaching is fundamentally about origins. It's fundamentally about meaning. It's fundamentally about significance. And it's also an eschatological teaching. So, so I started doing work on that. And then what happened is I got embroiled in administrative work at the university. And so the project basically rose for four years. But in the meantime, I'd been doing all this really wonderful reading uh, of anthropologists, of, of botanists, and all kinds of fascinating people who were opening up a much richer, deeper understanding of human embeddedness. And, and that just happened to coincide with one of the fundamental things I was learning about what it means to be a creature, which is to say, first of all, you're not a god. <laughs> Get that out of your head. And the second thing is that to be a creature is to be limited. And that's something that a lot of people historically have had trouble with. And because of that, we've done tremendous damage to our places and our communities because we've not understood how to see limits not simply as a negative thing, but as an opening, right? That, you know, if you, if you want to use artistic language, the fact that a sonnet is limited to a certain number of lines is actually really important because it creates the space in which you now can do something that is recognizable, that is meaningful, that is coherent, right? So the idea of doing a painting that has no borders, what, what would that possibly be? Right, so you have to always work within constraints and then learn to see them not simply as, as stifling, but also as, as, uh, as a kind of inspiration uh, for living in modes of more or less fidelity. And so that became the heart of thinking about what creaturely identity means. And then, and then the third part was, was what does creativity look like? And so I was pushing against there this idea that the creative person is this sort of individual, agonizing, anxious, you know, genius who's tortured and engaged in self-expression. And I, I wanted to say that that's one version of what creativity is. It's a fairly recent one, but that we're much better off thinking about creativity as our participation in the unfolding of the world. As, and creation as, a, as an ongoing mode of being rather than as a distant event. Yeah, I mean, it's always ongoing. And, and this also is part of the trouble with a lot of the received anthropological accounts that, that really want to think about human beings as discrete, more or less finished things. And, and the point, of course, is that we're not. We're not ever finished. We're always in the processes of becoming. And when you take seriously creatureliness, it's always co-becoming with other creatures. And the range of creatures that we become with 
is bewilderingly complex, right? And it starts with our microbiome in our guts and extends all the way through plants and animal life, through mineral, through water systems, through meteorological realities, right? We are, we are so intimately stitched into a fabric that has a bewildering array of creatures in it and processes going on and and to think that we could talk about human beings as somehow separate from all that. Oh, Norman, I thought of you just today. Have you it's seen? It's just crazy. Did you see the thing about Elon Musk starting a Twitter conversation about artificial wombs? Elon Musk is part of the problem. I mean, okay, I, let's do this. He's not the only one. He's not the only one. Uh, he's I mean, not. He's the transhumanist I mean, world, right? I know, but you know, think about someone like Stephen Hawking, who's a very intelligent man. The fact that he could seriously entertain the idea that human beings are going to relocate to some other planet is, is just to be fundamentally confused about embodiment. And to, to, we've, been, we've been fooled into thinking that our skin, which represents a kind of border of our being, somehow leads to us being extricated from the habitats in which we live. That's just not possible for us to live anywhere else. We'd have to take the whole earth with us because it's taken millions of years of evolutionary development for us to function here and not just to function, but to think that the world that we live in is beautiful. It's fragrant. It's delicious. You know, you can touch it and it's beautiful, right? It can also be rough, no question, but this is a hospitable world for human flourishing. And, and to think that we're gonna relocate somewhere else where the conditions for our thriving are not there, it's not just that they're not there, it's inhospitable. What makes us think we're gonna thrive there if we can't thrive here? That's just and, a and fundamental- And so much delusion. of the mantra is, um, in order to thrive, we have to leave the planet. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre logic that if you were to look at it just a little bit, you'd realize this is insanity. The idea that we're going to spend billions of dollars, and as Musk says, a lot of people are going to die in the attempt, and also realize that only a very limited number of people are going to afford to even consider this flight to some other planet. Why would we want to do all of that when we could instead say, how do we repair our relationships here now? How do we learn to live better here now? Not just sustainably, how do we live here beautifully? How do we live here peaceably? Because the problem, and this is the fundamental one, and it has a lot to do with limits, is a fundamental discontent with where we are, a fundamental discontent with who we are, right? We can't think a place is good enough, and we can't think that who we are is good enough. And both of those are a direct affront to God saying, this is a good place, and you're loved. Right? So it's a failure, it's a fundamental theological failure to say that we have to leave this planet because it's not good enough, or we have to become something other than human because our humanity is not good enough. Or we see the world primarily as a vehicle for extracting resources from. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, that, that all goes you know, as part of it, this idea that we could do damage to the very conditions of our being and not damage ourselves, right? Yeah. That's, that, that's sort of the fundamental delusion, I think, which is that we're not really part of this world. And, and theological or spiritual traditions have contributed to that in a lot of damaging ways, right? I mean, think about 
um, so many otherworldly spiritualities, right? You hang on until you die, and then you get to go somewhere else to be with God, and everything's going to be great. And the trouble with that way of thinking is that it assumes that heaven is solved if you can get the transportation right. When what's pretty clear to me when you read scripture is that heaven's about transformation. It's not about transportation. It's always a placed reality, but it's a transformed reality because it's only the love of God that's the power animating all those relationships in heaven. And so what we ought to be figuring out is how do we participate in that godly love here and now as the Lord's prayer instructs us to do. And then if we can do that, the world in which we live will not just become more habitable, we'll create sites of beauty, we'll create sites of flourishing, mutual flourishing. And, and so much of our history of settlement and development signals a refusal to want to well, live harmoniously. I mean, I live, uh, so I live in the, um, oh, well, as you know, we grew up, you and I both grew up on the plains in farming country and now i live in farming country again in england in the yeah. i live in west sussex which i absolutely love but your friend wendell berry has ruined nature for me because i used to have this sentimental idea that oh farmers they love the land and yeah. now whenever i walk across fields all i see is topsoil being eroded and i see yeah, yeah. and i see fields you know soil being forced to grow plants and animals that have no place business being there and i'm thinking oh yeah no we're not actually living with the land we're doing damage to the land and then it is damaging ourselves yep everywhere well we and go. it's a failure to ask a basic question which is where are we right literally where are we what's going on here and how do we learn to live peaceably where we are and that's Rather not than, a question that yeah. developers ask it's not a question miners ask it's not a question a lot of you know, farmers ask. And so you're right. The, the basic thing that we have to do, and, and I would say that this is exactly why in the creation story in Genesis 2, God instructs the Adam to take care of the garden. You got to learn where you are if you're going to live here. And the way you learn where you are is you work with where you are, right? You tend, you keep. And, and so rather than thinking of tending and keeping as a punishment, which is often how that passage yeah, is interpreted, so right? Much is, right? Yeah. And and tell you, having grown up farming, I understand why you would think that because farming can be tough, tough work, you know, frustrating work and work that reveals your impotence and your ignorance. And so, yeah, I get why in a lot of ways, farming can just be miserable, but it can also be beautiful because it's that material, embodied, practical, intimate engagement with with soils and waters and plants and animals that you you begin to understand something about the world that you have to live in the world from which you draw your nurture but also the world from which you can draw your inspiration to live a beautiful life so it's always this complex negotiation with where we are and what i'm saying is that so much theology so much philosophy so many spiritualities have undermined that possibility because their first starting point is sort of a Gnostic flight from the world. So what's the connection to the Anthropocene age then? So you, you mentioned this earlier, and this is a really fertile area I want to talk a little bit about. I mean, in a way, I, we don't want to dwell on it forever because 
this isn't you're not promoting it, but it's setting the stage. Can you tell us what 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 do, what do you mean by the Anthropocene? Okay, so it, I mean it's a contentious term. There's a lot of debate about whether it's the best term to use, but it, the the term was really introduced around 2000. There are some people who were talking similar similarly before then, but for our purposes, saying 2000 is a good place because Paul Crutzen, uh, a, a scientist, said that we're not living in the Holocene anymore. We're living in the Anthropocene, and the Holocene is that period of roughly 12,000 years in which we've seen agricultural societies develop. It's been a time of relative climatic stability. It's been ideal for people to grow cultures and big sort of farm operations and you know all of the kinds of consumer appropriation that we've seen happen over the last several centuries. So that's the Holocene, but the Anthropocene, Crutzen came up with that name because he said human beings are now the primary, right? And this is important. We're not just, you know, living on this earth and modifying a few things here or there. No, we're altering the fundamental geophysical, biological, ecological systems that govern this planet's life. So we're talking about changing life at a cellular structure, right? Think about genetic modification. We're thinking about altering species, right? Designing new species, extinguishing species. We're talking about obviously climate change, which has affected weather systems all around the world, coastal sea level rise, melting of freshwater systems, the drying up of aquifers, introducing new disease vectors. I mean, there's so many ways now that the human economy as it's developed over the last several decades is fundamentally altering the earth. And that's not just, you know, on the, I think one more dimension of this, of course, would be radiation from the roughly 28,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs that have been detonated on this earth since Second World War. So we're fundamentally altering the chemistry, the biology, the ecology, the meteorology of the earth. That means we're creating the conditions for destabilization but we're also creating this new sort of what we might call ontological ambiguity because it doesn't make sense to talk about nature anymore. What, 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 what makes something natural when it's pretty clear that everything has been affected? We don't often know to what extent or degree, but almost every life form now is affected in some way, no matter where it is, by human economies and technologies. So the whole idea of the natural is gone. Or think about a term like economics. We used to think that economies can sort of work independent of ecologies. Absolutely not. Because we're now recognizing how ecological systems, uh, they're becoming much more explicit in the ways we think. Because now we can no longer think about nature, in quotation marks, as being this infinite sink that can absorb all of our poisons. Or that we can think of, of nature as that infinite warehouse from which we can just extract whatever resources or commodities we want. Yeah. Is this and what so, you mean when you're talking about the rooted life? Like you basically oppose two ideas. I, I'm putting words into your mouth. <laughs> but the, the Anthropocene is the, it's just the culture that we live. I mean, you can't get away. You can't opt out. That is what it is, which has given rise to one form of imagination which you label the transhumanist that this is the kind of utilitarian the the nature there's no nature there's only things that we can manipulate and then you oppose that with bringing the our imagination back into and you use two 
very good words, the rooted life and then the meshwork yes. world. Yes. So these are your this is this these are your solutions to the the way that our our imagination has been stultified by the Yeah, our, our imaginations have really been deformed because they've they've assumed this singular often autonomous extricatable thing called the human being that could live anywhere and oblivious to and sometimes even in opposition to the context of its own being. And so the language of rootedness is really important to me. And, and, I, and I develop some of this thinking by drawing on what we know from plant experience, plant physiology, because we've lived with this kind of illusion that because we're not plants, and if you follow a number of thinkers, we're much higher than plants, which I don't dispute. We are different than plants. I'm not saying we are plants, but it's interesting that in the hierarchy of being that you get in philosophy, plants are above soil, below animals, and we're obviously animals. And so we've assumed that because we're higher, we're not therefore rooted, which is a disaster because every time you eat, every time you drink, every time you touch, you're confirming that you are in fact rooted. Now the roots are not exactly like it would be in a plant that are very visible, but they're practical. They're also biochemical. I mean, you breathe, right? If you don't think you're rooted, just stop breathing. If you're a singular being, don't drink, don't eat. See how long that works. So we've, because we, we've thought of ourselves as somehow supremely above plant life, we think we're not rooted. And so I want to say, first of all, that's a big mistake. We are always rooted and we confirm it every day in our dwelling, in our eating, in our breathing and drinking. Then the, the second idea, the meshwork idea, was another way to push back at this idea that the human being is this atomized individual, self-starving, self-empowering, and so forth. And this is a tough one because the language of meshwork or the lang language of entanglement can appear really stifling, even oppressive. And when I've talked about this with other people, that's what they've said. Um, it's, it's oppressive and, and you're actually pushing against the modern emancipatory project, which was to, to free people from constraint, right? And there's a lot about that modern emancipatory project, which is really good because it's contributed to the liberation of women and, and minorities and, and, and children and all these sorts of things, which is all really important to do. But at the same time, if we think that the emancipatory project means that we're free of our relations with each other, that's a fundamental mistake because we're never free of those. And so the question is, how do you pair freedom and fidelity? Because freedom without fidelity leads to a kind of destructive behavior, kind of obliviousness, which we know is damaging. It leads to a kind of abandonment of people and communities and places. And we've seen what that does. But at the same time, you can't have fidelity without freedom because what's the point of being within a web of relationships or a meshwork of relationships? if there isn't the possibility for you to grow in the, in the ways that are uniquely yours to try to achieve. So freedom and fidelity have to play this dance um, so that meshwork isn't perceived to be just this oppressive place where you're sort of locked in and ch chained even uh, in relationships that um, are, are degrading or, or destroying even. And, and this is why I think the, the conception of the person as a communal ecological being is so important.
because the basic thing to do is to create communities in which mutual flourishing can happen. That's the key thing. And I believe that scripture has a lot to teach us about that. So what does a community that doesn't allow for mutual flourishing, like what might that look like? And name names if you want. I mean, like, are there some communities? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, just, just think about the number of communities in which women had no voice. Right. Okay. All right. So that, that's a perfect example where only some members in the community matter. Yeah. And other people are made so that they are, you know, slaves to the demands of others. And so rather than thinking about membership in a community as something in which people come into relationship with each other in processes of mutual exploration, mutual discovery, mutual enhancement, mutual correction, mutual support, right? That becomes the key because there is no flourishing alone. And that's been the great temptation to think that we can succeed at the expense of others, right? That's what we call dictators and autocrats. It's what we call the modern economy, right? Because we've postulated that we can grow the economy at the expense of the ecosystems that, that nurture it. And, and what we're seeing now, as we've seen the frontier of new land disappear, we're seeing there ain't no other place to go to, despite what Elon Musk might think. We're not going to go terraform other planets. What we got to do now is figure out how do we live in ways that are mutually enhancing. And mutuality becomes the key. But to talk about mutuality, you have to also appreciate that this is not a contravening of who we are, right? So if you start with the understanding that we are always already entangled beings, that our lives only make sense because we have mothers and fathers and friends and siblings and teachers and you know all the rest of the kinds of people, not to mention pets, not to mention forests that give oxygen not to mention the microbiome in our colonnade not i mean just the list goes endless right once you understand that there could never have been a you apart from all this other relationality going on in millions of directions at the same time then you're at least positioned to realize oh okay we're entangled to this from the start there's no escaping it now how do we create communities? How do we create economies? How do we create political systems, legal frameworks that make it possible for us to mutually flourish rather than individually flourish at the expense of others? Well, I'm aware, just to make it personal for a bit, you, you and I are both white guys that grew yes. up on Blackfoot land in yes. Alberta. Right. And, and the land we grew up on was stolen from people with brown skin. Right. And they were perhaps rooted in a way that you and I were not, right? Right. And you and I both now live in countries that we were not born in, and we live in on land that we didn't actually grow up on. So what have we lost? Oh, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. Right? What have so, we lost? Because we are white settlers who no longer even live on the land that we were born on. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very complicated and a good question. So we have to start with the recognition that the histories of land settlement are just full of violence and abuse, right? That's what we carry in our histories. And so when we do that, the question becomes, what, what's the response going to be, right? What, what steps need to be made to repair relationships with the land, relationships with indigenous landed 
peoples. We don't just cover over the history of abuse and violence and extraction and commodification. You can't mm. do that. Uh, because if you just try to cover it over, you can't possibly learn from it, right? One of the big mistakes, I think, is to assume that we should just let the history stay in the past. But when we do that, when we become defensive about acknowledging that past, we prevent ourselves from working toward repair. And, and so we're denying that we're rooted and, and entangled. Well, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, just from a basic biophysical point of view, we're always rooted. And, and there's something that I get from Robin Kimmerer, which is just really powerful. And she said, you know, when, when Europeans came to this place in, in the Americas, they came with this mind that you can commodify land, you can own it and privatize it. And she said, as a result, people never really cared about the land itself. They never came to see the land for what it is. And for what it is, is it's the place of nurture. It's the place of medicine. It's the place of inspiration. It's the place of relationship. It's the place where you can make kin with the creatures that you know are absolutely essential to your own well-being. And she says, when Europeans came and did not try to become kin with the land, when they came and tried not to see how they are embedded in the land and can only thrive in terms of the land, they were prevented from experiencing the land as the place that loves them. And this is huge because so much of the alienation that people feel, they feel alienated from their families, they feel alienated from communities, from countries, from you name it. The alienation goes deep and it creates a kind of loneliness in which people don't feel that they matter. And when you don't feel that you matter, you are going to do all kinds of crazy things often destructive things to demonstrate to yourself and to others that you matter. And this failure to see that the land loves you when you give your love to it. I mean, for people who actually work with the land, grow food, harvest, forage, whatever, what you discover very quickly is that the land responds to your love, right? To bring tenderness to the land rather than a grasping posture to the land is a game changer for you and for the land. And so when you don't have that basic respect, you don't have that posture of courtesy and even tenderness, you're deprived of one of the most important avenues through which you discover that your life matters, that you're loved as a creature of the land. And theologically, we would obviously say that it's God loving us through the land. That's right? the and this grace. Is, this is yeah. another, this is another one of my major theological beefs, which is, you know, people might say, yeah, God loves the land because, you know, they're, they're just inc incontrovertible evidence in scripture that God loves the land. But what they don't say, which is the most important step, is to say that the land and its creatures is the place, the embodied site where the love of God is daily at work. And if you're not going to find the love of God at work, in a raspberry or in a, a cow or a bee, where are you gonna find the love of God at work? Just in your mind? What you've done is you've dramatically restricted the scope of God's loving action in the world. And in doing that, you feel cut off from God. And you know, I remember years ago, I had a, a letter from a, a guy in Ontario, I'm teaching in Kentucky at the time. And he says, can I come down to Kentucky to visit you? 
And I said, that's a long way to come to visit me. Why do you want to talk to me? And he says, because I feel alienated from the land. I feel lonely. I said, well, how am I going to help you with that? And he said, well, I think if I talk to you, it'll help. And I said, you don't need to talk to me. You need to go a garden. I said, start, start to actually give yourself to a place, to a neighborhood, to a community. And then maybe you'll start to feel some of the connection that you feel you're missing right now. Because this is not something you talk your way into. Uh, it's something that you work your way into through the kinds of embodied connections, the real tangible relationships that happen through the full sensorium of smell and taste and so forth. I once heard, a, he's from Brazil. I, he, must, he must have been Roman Catholic or something. But he was speaking to a group of Christian theologians. He said, the problem with you Protestants is you think talking about something is the same as doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's right. Yeah, there's like it's really wordy. We're sort of addicted to wordiness, and we think talking about it and pontificating and writing. Well, is they the think same if we get the argument it. right, we'll get to God properly. Yeah. And of yeah. course, you don't get to God by talking about God. No. It's yeah, like, and, but that's the alienation it. that you talked about. Like, if you're not getting it from nature, then where are you going to get it from? From your own internal monologue. So you think you're going to have a relationship with your beloved by talking about them? Yeah, exactly. Seriously. It's not going to happen. I mean, you, you actually have to relate to them. And that means get in touch. So where does the word sacred show up then? Now, your book is, is about the sacred life. What is sacred about this description? Yeah, yeah. Great question. There's, there's again, several dimensions to this. On the one hand, I'm, I'm pushing back against what we might call the disenchantment of the world that develops in modernity or the desacralization of the world where we hollow the world out of its connection to God. It's just stuff. And as stuff, it has no purpose, no meaning, no significance other than the meaning and significance we give to it. And we do that by putting a value on it, an economic value, for instance. And so the world is reduced to utility, right? And we apply our instrumental modes of engagement where we say, what can this do for me? And if it can do something really good, it's really valuable and we can price it accordingly. And of course, that means then that there is no place on earth and no creature that cannot be reduced to a calculus of means ends calculations or not any creature or place that can't be reduced to a unit of production or consumption. And we, we're seeing this. I mean, we treat workers, farm workers, for instance, they're not much better treated or worse treated than slaves have been treated often. And and so that, that's, that's a really concerning notion when the whole world is subject just to utilitarian calculation or profit maximization or whatever. This is a world where nothing is sacred, nothing. So what, what does it mean to talk about it as sacred? Well, the first thing I wanna say is that to say the world is sacred is not to say that it's divine, okay? I'm not saying that the world is God. What I wanna say is the world is all gift. Because from a creation point of view, it doesn't have to exist. So the fact that it does exist reflects a divine intention that it's good for it to exist. It's beautiful for it to exist. And it's a total game changer because now when you understand that places, fellow creatures, fellow human beings are sacred gifts, we're no longer in a utilitarian calculation mode. We're in a kind of cherishing mode. We're in a kind of how do we learn to receive respectfully, courteously, gratefully? How do we learn to share? Uh, gifts operate in a different logic than simply a commodity does. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that we could go to something back like a gift economy in which there is no longer any kind of market exchange because we know historically that even those gift economies that we saw circulating in indigenous communities historically, there was still exchange that was happening. So I'm not opposed to exchange, but what I'm wanting to put on the table is a radically different notion of the kind of world that we're in so that if you understand that a land is a sacred gift or you understand that a chicken is a sacred gift, you're gonna treat it differently because you'll start with a recognition of, the, of that place's or that creature's sanctity, right? The possibility that that creature's life or that place's existence can be violated. And that's of course what's missing in a utilitarian calculation. Things matter only insofar as they're useful to me or to my corporation or whatever. And so the point with the sacred is to say, we've mistaken, right? Miss with a hyphen, taken the world because we've not properly perceived how it's actually a gift. And this is not unique to Christian thinking. It's, it's shared by a lot of religious traditions. It's shared by a lot of indigenous communities. The idea that we live in a world that has a creator who provides the, the whole of our human existence with gifts. And we're constantly having to negotiate how to receive these gifts well. And this is, I think, part of the great insight from indigenous communities, which is that we live in a world that is saturated with a moral sensibility. Nothing is profane. Nothing is just profane. Everything uh, is already in some way touched by this sacred givingness, this sacred intention that loves the world into being, sustains it in its being. What does that look like for someone who has to go to the supermarket to get their food and has to can you can you love it can you intentionally and thankfully take the cellophane off your apples that flew in from New Zealand and can you I mean yeah, yeah, how yeah, do you yeah, treat yeah. how do you treat the supermarket economy as gift yeah well that's the hard part where we've got these massive food systems now become so depersonalized, so abstracted, so placeless, so that so many consumers now who eat food have no idea where the food comes from, no idea under what conditions it grows well or poorly. They know nothing about the histories of the food coming to be. And so the, the response to that is to say, how do we create food systems in which people can come to understand the history of things coming to be? So put it very generally, so much of our economy is anonymous, okay? It happens behind veils of ignorance where nobody knows what's on the other side of the veil. And what I wanna say is if you want to recover something of the giftedness of life, you gotta take down the veil. And that means shortening the business between consumer and producer. It means learning about the histories of the things that you purchase. How did they come to be what they are? And in the food space, what this means specifically is finding ways to make connections with farmers. And there's lots of ways this is happening. I don't know what the deal is in England because you know your context is different, but I know you've got a soil association. I know you've got folks who are trying to get students out onto farms so they understand things better. I know you've got co-op arrangements, you've got farmers markets just like we do here. And, and the key is that, yeah, I'm not expecting everybody to grow their own food. That's a huge task. And a lot of people don't have the intelligence or the skill to do it. But as a consumer, 
you can still purchase food in which you know that the farmer who grew it or raised it respected the life of the animal, the life of the soil, right? The life of the water. And so that they are honoring these, these realities and in honoring them, the farmers that is, by paying them for food that they raise responsibly and respectfully, you actually participate in making sure that that kind of food production grows and expands. So yeah, you're not directly growing the food yourself, but you're helping the farmers who are doing a good job do more of it. And so my, my argument is that we need to find ways for consumers to come into contact with farmers who are doing the good stuff and supporting them because you know, farmers get a lot of bad rap and, and they, they don't, um, they're not appreciated for the, the really difficult context in which they're trying to do their work and they get vilified for that. And I'm saying it's, it's time for us not to do that, but to see what can we as consumers do to help farmers grow the kind of food that they want. And, you know, just thinking about your English context, you've got a person there now, James Rebanks, who's doing all this really great stuff, writing about the context of farming in the UK. And so I encourage, you know, United Kingdom citizens to, to pay attention to Rebanks because he's got really important things to say about these matters. I mean, you, you talked about cre creativity as your final in the trifecta, right? Yes. Creation, we are creatures, and then we are creative. Um, is this part of being creative is, is recognizing the, I mean, it's almost like the sacredness is an act, it becomes an action, like we get to participate, or we even in yeah. Tao, yeah. we get to participate in the act of making something sacred, don't we? That's right, we do. I mean, Wendell has this great line where he says, the world is a holy vision that we depend on each other to see. That's yeah. not exactly how he put it, but that's the point. And I think he's absolutely right. And, and the activities of making, right? I wanna say that just as consumers have been abstracted from their economies, they're, they're living in a world where they're behind bales and they don't see where things come from, how they came to be. In the same way, by reducing consumers to passive receptacles of whatever gets handed to them, right? Just put down your credit card. That kind of passivity means that human beings are prevented from participating in the world's processes of coming to be. And in that lack of participation, we become stupid. We just don't understand the kind of world we're in. And, and this, again, you have to understand, this is, this is new in the history of humanity, right? For, for centuries, most people had a hand in their own food production, their own home construction, home maintenance, right? They just did that. And, and the work, and you have to say, this is a word work that a lot of people get nervous about because we despise manual labor, but the manual work is so, so important because when you actually decide, I want to grow some food or you decide, I want to build a table or I want to build a home or whatever you want to do, I want to make some clothing. It draws you into the world more intelligently because you now have to think about, well, what are the materials I need to make any of this happen? And you have to then say, let's if we use a table as an example, you've got to think about wood. Well, what, what wood works best? How do I handle the wood? And then you start to think, well, is the wood being grown sustainably, sustainably harvested appropriately in a respectful manner? And, and you're drawn into the world and you begin to understand some of the fragility of this world. 
You begin to understand the vulnerability of our life with others. You begin to understand how in your own making you can ruin things, which is a tragedy, okay? And so the importance of having a skilled, intelligent, knowledgeable understanding of the world becomes something that maybe goes out of that abstract realm in the back of your head and it's right front and center now because you're actually going to make a meal. You're actually going to build something. And in the building of it, you come to an understanding of the world that is much more nuanced, more detailed. And of course, there are major degrees in this, right? Building one table isn't going to make you wise to the whole world. That ain't going to happen. But it's one example in which you come to appreciate something about the character of our existence with other creatures in places. I mean, part of creativity means intentionality, right? Like it means uh, just looking at the thing. Like you said, it's not just a table that you go on to Amazon and buy. It's yeah. something you think, all right, what is this table in front of me? What is yeah. it that I need? And and the, the in, and creativity comes out of that. But I'm reminded that that's also limit the limit brings out the creation, right? So, well, and there's another dimension is which is really really important. A lot of store bought stuff. When you pick it up, what's the intention behind the thing that you've bought? Well, in many instances, it's going to reflect some CEO's desire to make money off of you. It's not made with love. That's why I, I talk about William Morris, because I think he already saw in the industrial age that the stuff being made in all these factories, no self-respecting human being would make because it's shoddy, it's cheap, it's junky, it's not nutritious, it's not high quality. And the evacuation of quality in things, that has real implications for us. Because if the things that we use and need don't reflect a loving intention, an intention of care, right? That I want to do a good job for you because I respect you as the one who's going to use it. When you live in a world surrounded by things that reflect only somebody else's interest in making money off of you, that's very different than living in a world where the things around you are the material expressions of a loving intention. And what you do when you participate in the making of things is you can grow your love into the thing. And you can now look at the thing that you made and say, this reflects effort, this reflects courage, this reflects experimentation, this reflects skill. And now the thing is valuable in a way that it never would have been if it was just, well, I, I, got, it for, I got it on sale for 10 bucks, right? What's the value of something when it has no sort of loving intention at work behind it? It's the difference between doing a drive-through where they just hand you the food and you just go on your merry way versus being invited into somebody's home and you realize they spent the whole day making this meal for you because they think you're worth it. The person in the drive-through window, they might smile and say, hey, have a good day. But do they really give a rip about you individually as a person? Well, maybe, but maybe not. And so... What, what the world of making does and our participation in making is it personalizes the world, right? It helps us recognize that we live in a world where everything that we touch, ideally, everything that we touch reflects a loving intention. Yeah. That's a game changer. Yeah. It's putting a face to the faceless. Like it's, it's kind of making human again what 
a lot of our world, even though it is an Anthropocene world, it's also a transhumanist world in which we are deliberately trying to burn the humanity out of our product, yep. out of what we exactly. do. And what we're trying to do is yep. just put the humanity back in, right? Yeah. yeah. Which itself is not disconnected from mushrooms and oxygen and <laughs> water and exactly. microbiome. Like, uh, to just talk about a human life is not to talk about some isolated little atom like exactly. a billiard ball bouncing around it's it's deeply rooted and enmeshed so i love the vision in in the sacred life yeah i, I really right. recommend it i i mean we're, we're going to come in for a landing here where can people go uh norman if they want to find out more about your work where would you send people so i've, I've got a website just normanwordsma.com pretty easy Okay, I'll put um, that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean the the book's available online, all sorts of places. From you know, it, we've got a place called Bookshop.org online, which is supporting right. independent booksellers. Yeah, but, I was going to say, should we avoid the big? Uh, <laughs> the, I mean, the, it, should it, we not it help is, Jeff Bezos get it, get off here? It, it's on all those places for sure, but yeah. uh, happily, you know. Amazon has not yet gouged the press uh, because the the price at the press and the price on Amazon is almost identical. So yeah, right. Amazon so did not manage to to, to gouge. Let's humanize our purchases and get it from a real. <laughs> yeah, and publisher. and you know the best, of course, is if you've got a local bookstore, just go over there and you know if they don't have it, I know that a lot of places won't have a Cambridge University Press book, but you know if you if you want to support them, ask them to order it. They they're happy to order stuff for you. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and it might make you wait a day. No, that's okay. You're not going to die if you wait for a day for a great book. And you've also written about the theology of food as well, right? So I think, I feel like I'm going to have to, my wife is a nutritional therapist and um, just, uh, she gives talks on to farmers about the nutritional quality of soil and oh, what yeah. soil does to the nutrition of food and not. And so she's, uh, yeah, I'm going to get your book for her for a gift, I think. Yeah, no, I think um, that that's also been pleasing to see. That's a book that's really resonated with a lot of people because what I wanted to do there was open up, open up something that's so mundane, like eating, right? We eat every day, yeah. several times, and we've hardly thought about it theologically in a deep way. I know Christians, when they had thought about food, they thought about hunger and they thought about vegetarianism every once in a while. Right. And those are important issues, but there's so much more. Yeah going on in eating yeah. and what food is so so that yeah that was a that was a really enjoyable book to work on because you discover that eating is this incredibly amazing activity well it combines everything you've just described all in one it's so well, it, it just goes in every direction utilitarian right? and yeah. natural and creative it's just and hospitable it's just all these things all at once exactly right right Oh, Norman, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time. I, I've, I've really loved this conversation. Yeah, this has been really fun, Steve. Uh, so well, thank you. A friend of the show, Steve Bell, I think, is the man who got us in touch with each other. Yeah, you got you got to have a little Steve Bell soundtrack going in the background here. I love Steve. Yeah, well, I'll definitely ask Steve to contribute something to this to this program, I think. so. All right, that's really great. Well, I hope our paths will cross one day in actual person so we can um, we can actually physically be in the yeah. same room. But until then, go well, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Stephen. All the best. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. 
This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. of living much wiser than the ways we know kinder and forgiving of the limits we're inclined to know native to this land that God has given us to grow the seeds of love the shoot of faith tree of hope Stop. 